Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Welcome, everyone, to this uh, very exciting session we have today on advancing ESG strategies, uh, which is a panel discussion. We will be discussing the transformative effect of ESG and what that effect is on how companies operate and the opportunity corporate real estate professionals have to play both on a tactical as well as strategic side in helping C-suite develop, execute, and benchmark ESG strategies. My name is Sanali Tare, VP of Strategic Content for Cornet Global, and I'm the host and moderator for this webinar. With that, I'd like to introduce our speakers for today. First, we have Matt Shuhai. Matt is a managing director and founding member of Deloitte Consulting's real estate and location strategies practice. He has deep experience in aligning corporate strategy and real estate portfolios, including domestic and international site selection and development, specializing in global deployment strategy, market entry, operating model strategy, amongst others. Thank you, Matt, for being here. My pleasure. Next, we have Maureen Ehrenberg, Chief Executive Officer at Blue Sky Re, IBE, a Collier strategic partner. Maureen is a commercial real estate executive with over 30 years of experience in the industry. Her expertise is in business transformation and strategic operational redesign for the changing world of work and buildings. Maureen works with her clients to solve for opportunities that rethink and reset building, portfolio, and service delivery. Thank you, Maureen. Next, we have Michael Hall, MBA, Managing Director and Environmental Health and Safety Lead, Global Corporate Services at Newmark. Michael leads the Environmental Health and Safety, which is the EHNS Center of Excellence, overseeing compliance for the Newmark Global Corporate Services Group, and is an expert contributor to building sustainable business development proposals. His primary focus is forging a culture of health and safety to protect Newmark's people, its clients, and communities. Thank you for being here, Michael. And then last but not least, we have Greg Bolino, Head of Global Sustainability Strategy and Assets at JLL. Greg has helped companies who see opportunities for growth in the four pillars of the clean energy transition, renewable energy, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, and energy storage. Greg has spent over 36 years helping leaders reinvent their business to help growth through strategy, innovation, and new operating models. He has advised executives, boards, policymakers, and investors to help navigate this changing landscape in multiple industries. So thank you, Greg. I also want to give a big thank you to Deloitte Colliers, Newmark, and JLL for their partnership and collaborations with Cornell Global. We cannot do these webinars without that. So without further ado, let's go into our discussion for today. ESG is a broad topic encompassing many, many different things. That being said, what does ESG mean to each of you? I'll take a shot. I look at ESG across a, a number of different realms here. I look at it as an investment tool, once again, to show investors the health you know, of the firm, the firm's activities in these areas. Um, again, it is a set of criteria to help a company understand its current and future risks and the opportunities to its business. If it has a continuity plan in place to take into consideration these effects, right? Once again, investors are using these to screen investments and make sure that the company has a mature thought on this and that they're not just putting out statements, but there's actually substance behind these policies. And then again, it's just really mitigating any losses in you know bad investments that in, that a that a group might have just looking at these right. I also look at it as a business continuity and a risk analysis tool, just really understanding these factors and really building these into your business operations. Look at that huge as a risk analysis tool, and then again just a tool to drive change right. So it's going to help us drive a more diverse, transparent, and accountable business world. You know by holding companies accountable to these higher standards. And when I look at this piece right here, I really look at it through like the definition of UN sustainability, which states the meeting of the needs of the present without compromising the ability of the future generations to meet their own needs. So we're putting the inroads in right now to be able to meet our needs, but really set up the future for a better world, for more you know, diverse, inclusive, more efficient, more clean earth in, in, in business world for us. So I really think that this is creating a way of being and a culture in this new world versus just, you know, an act or a, a task that needs to be done. So that's how I kind of look at ESG across the board. Yeah, I kind of share Michael's view. It's really taking a holistic approach to an organization's commitment to its social goals 
And the only way to, to do that really is to build trust and to deliver really sustained outcomes and results. So you have to completely relook at your different processes and how you're operating and put that through those filters, regardless if you're in the investor side, the corporate side, it's the organization itself that is changing the way it operates to build a more sustainable operating model for the future. I would add, I think, um, just raising the investor and occupiers, they're both focused on some key outcomes. And we think of five big outcomes. One is carbon, which is just has been disruptive and is rethinking a lot of the baselining and expectations. Uh, other resources like waste and water, these are also critical hard commitments to be made. Uh, we see human capital and social value being incredibly important. And human capital is broad. This is more than just uh, well-being and, and ventilation. This is true, you know, are we able to innovate? Are we able to collaborate? And you're seeing major companies make huge investments in changing how they work in order to drive more engagement and innovation. Uh, and then social value underpins that, the, the broad concepts around equity and community and value. And then finally, risk, which, you know, is for us more than just the chance of a bad thing happening. It's what are the investments in resiliency you need to make in order to deal with the risk that you face? And, and those five outcomes give you a much sharper lens, I think, on some of the investments. That's how we how we think about it and how we help our clients. Yeah, and I just add to that, I bring a, you know, a more strategic view on where you deploy and how this is going to impact the corporate real estate executive in terms of, you know, being ahead of the curve in terms of attracting a talent, looking at sustainable operating environments, you know, that's not just climate change and biodiversity, but that's social justice, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. All of these factors are, you know, is important to the, the labor force. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But, you know, it's really being strategic and elevating the role of the corporate real estate executive into the long-term planning process as much as instead of reacting to growth plans, actually helping drive them in a, with an ESG lens. That's fantastic. And that's a great, you know, jumping off board for our discussion and a great baseline for, for what we're going to talk about. So thank you for sharing that. So our, our first question, I suppose, is with no set ESG standardization, many companies are in different places within their ESG journey. What goals are you seeing companies setting and how are they collecting data and prioritizing these goals? I was just with a, a client in Australia and they were sharing that they have set goals on all 17 of the, the UN strategic parameters. And she was really tired. She was really exhausted trying to keep up with all those. So I think it's a real challenge when you see how broad some of the agenda is. We see data as one of the big challenges. All of our clients talk about data being number one on their list of things that hinder them, meaning the ability to establish a baseline, to look at the foundation of your footprint, to think about your broader goals. And so we've been building and developing platforms that allow that kind of analysis. But the five things I mentioned are the centerpiece of some of the hard commitments we think that companies need to make in terms of achieving real outcomes that aren't, uh, that are no longer, it's no longer adequate to, to use the ESG frameworks of the past or even building certifications. None of them are actually sufficient in terms of the ambitions that employees, customers, investors are setting for companies. And so they're having to change the frame and, and data and analysis is one of the big impediments to doing that. Mm -hmm. No, I absolutely agree with that. There's a huge difference in terms of comparable data globally. In North America and Europe, there's there's a pretty good set of data, at least to start. But in other parts of the world, it is it is evolving. And that is a challenge. And it's a challenge to make objective comparisons between different parts of the world because they're starting from a different you know, foundational point. So, you know, diversity is a different de definition of that in Europe versus the U.S. versus Southeast Asia. You know, and so we look at progression as well. I mean, because you are starting from different foundational or different baselines in different parts of the world. Yeah, many firms are starting with, you know, just conducting a, a materiality assessment to try to at least understand those things that they can measure because there are thousands of initiatives uh, you can actually do. And so it's what are the most important and how do they align with your goals? So actually understanding each organization has different goals. They have a different business. Uh, they've got different commitments, priorities, different talent base. And so first, just assessing what is your purpose and journey and what are you trying to accomplish? And then looking at all the different priorities and then what is the impact that different initiatives would have? Because if you start doing pairwise comparisons, looking at one versus another and starting to kind of force rank them, you can begin to understand 
that while something might be easier to do or it's easier to write a business case, it may not be the most important place to place that capital. But beyond that, just going back to the last question you had, when we were all talking about operationalizing this, a big component of it outside of just the data is the way people operate in their day-to-day. And that goes everything from looking at how certain things are processed, what use of automation do you have? And this is where a lot of the um, technology comes in for real estate and corporate real estate. And I would say that it's not unlike a long time ago when people were looking at process re-engineering. That same sort of process has to happen where all the different processes within your business gets re-looked at and say, how do we actually change the way we act and operate every day? And so it very uh, it takes a very holistic view, as Matt was saying, because you're looking at all components of your business. It's just not the workplace and the real estate itself. So you need to start somewhere. And it really does help to start with some sort of materiality assessment and really getting in and understanding what it is that you've got to report versus how do you need to start to change the way you act? I was going to piggyback right off that, the materiality assessment, the stakeholder engagement, right? So that, to Maureen's point, there's just so many things out there you can do, understanding who those key stakeholders are, how they impact your end business, and then taking those material interests and using those as risks, right? What's the risk of not moving forward with this to this group right here? Running that through a risk matrix and then prioritizing. You cannot do everything on that list. So really being able to describe that, have a sign off on that, a risk acceptance so that everything is structured, a communication plan. I mean, again, just going through this because it's, it's, it's the Wild West right now. I mean, you've seen people setting goals all over the place. Some people are focused on investment goals and they really want to raise their scores with MSCI, ISS and Sustainalytics. And they're doing just the, the little tiny actions to really just drive those scores up. Well, you'll have people de- uh, focused on business development, which goes into, you know, diversity and inclusion and um, community procurement, you know, human rights and labor rights, which yeah. to me, that's really the way to start, right? It's focusing on the policies and procedures that are then going to raise your rating scores, right? Versus starting at the the short-term little tactical things, focus on the things that are really important to your customers and and form plans. Again, there's a difference between putting a boilerplate answer to one of these rating agencies, checking the box. It almost annoys them more. You're not going to get full points for that. You need to have a well thought out process procedure that can be measured that can be improved upon that's what they want to see investors want to know that you understand your risk you understand what's coming at you and that you have plans to keep this no pun intended sustainable in the future you know so huge with that marine materiality assessment stakeholder engagement and then prioritizing through risk i found to be the most efficient and effective manner of doing this yeah and i think the most important thing in all of this is this idea around you know people will say sustained and sustainable and The sustained is really, it continues to go. It's not a one-time thing. And that ultimately for the business outcomes and results, whatever process you're looking at, Mm -hmm. it is critically important that you can demonstrate that you change the way you're operating and not only change the way you're acting and operating, but people get to understand better why. You know, really why, why are you changing this? Because sometimes it seems pretty random and people don't understand that, yes, Health and safety is part of this. And yes, my site selection is part of this and my commute. All of these pieces matter. Yeah. You know, I think I think what that conversation just illustrated is how broad as well as how deep this, this issue is. And one of the things that I think Matt brought up a little bit earlier on, and you know, you've all alluded to a little bit as well, is the change in the workforce. You yep. know, Gen Z is set up to shake up the workforce. They have strong values and beliefs that they're bringing into the workplace, and they're willing to forego jobs that may not align with their values. So how is this war on talent going to work with ESG? And how does ESG work to attract that talent that everyone is looking for? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's really driving part of the change. I mean, there's for investors and reporting, but there's a shortage of talent globally. And as we skew demographically younger to Gen Z and others, this is very important. And so having the ability to attract and retain talent is really incumbent upon having a robust ESG policy in place. And it is simply a very straightforward example of social justice. What's your stance on social justice? What does it mean for reproductive rights? There's entire, you know, 
Poland is an example, you know, in Europe, you know, and now in the U.S. with the, you know, the repeal of Roe versus Wade. What does this mean, especially for like life sciences companies where, you know, a lot of half their workforce typically are women? Are you disenfranchising half your workforce by making a location decision that's at odds with, with social justice? You know, and if you think about where you deploy data centers, if with global warming and other, you know, are you going to have a green footprint? All of these are top of mind to the talent you're trying to attract. And it is, it's front and center about it. When you're trying to recruit these people and when you're trying to retain these people, if you don't have a cohesive policy around ESG, you're going to suffer from a talent perspective. And that's not just where you go, it's where you are. I think it's doing yeah. two things, right? I think it's, I, go, go ahead, Greg. I was talking, go ahead. Oh, no, thanks, Michael. I, I was going to say, I, I, about JLL, I've been saying we're hiring like it's 1999, which is both a Prince reference and just a reference to the very hot market, if people remember back in 99. And and the war for talent is really to be able to attract people. And and it's we're having incredible success at the youngest level, actually. The people who want to join us most fervently are the youngest people. As you said, this generation cares about you know, our purpose. We shape the future of real estate for a better world. They hear our commitments, the science-based target initiative. We're number six to be authorized. Now there's 2,300 companies. So they see us as a leader, like they're expecting that of us. And because we're doing those things, it's able, it, we're able to engage. They see our proposition, they see our culture. This is what people want to hear about. And I think it's, it's important, you know, we're not done moving our company's culture, but, but I think every company has to answer important questions that are the questions these young people are asking about what it's like to work, what are the commitments, how do they collaborate? And, and this is really, uh, this is working for us so far. We're on a very aggressive hiring and, and you know, across uh, all, all the regions in the world. But Greg, I think there's two components as well, because I do think it's creating just a fantastic place to work and a compelling value prop just about your own company. But then it is also about the work that you do. And so I think that a benefit of corporate real estate and facilities and what we all do every day is very, very attractive. And so in the past, it was kind of unusual to talk to a high school student or a college student, say, what are you going to do? And they're like, oh, I want to go into corporate real estate or I want to do facility management. But today, that awareness of the impact that our profession has on the built environment and the amount of impact that the built environment actually does have on this planet it is, um, it's becoming a very attractive when they see the alignment between ESG and how we can make a difference from, as we're talking about site selection, impact on the social value within a community yeah. that a site or a business is choosing to go. And what is that positive impact? What's the potential negative impact? So what is the right location? So there's so many like really interesting, very interesting things that ESG for real estate and the built environment creates an incredible recruiting opportunity as long as you walk the walk and you actually do have these programs yep. and make that commitment. So I think all of our organizations have seen the interest and the benefits, but that makes it incumbent upon us to really stay on top of what is going on, what is the latest and keep evolving and innovating because ultimately that's what our clients are coming to us for is many times partnering or solutions in this area. And it, I think it really does go back to relooking at everything you're doing and how you're doing it. And it's creating a new blueprint for how you're going to be working and operating and recruiting and serving your clients. Yeah, I was going to add on to that again as the driver of change. ESG is almost mandating the conversation. Like at least with like, look at New York real estate, there's like a brokerage mentality, right? A lot of people hire who they know, they hire their friends. They're not really looking outside of their inner circle to find talent, right? So ESG is forcing this conversation through being asked about diversity inclusion, being asked about supplier diversity. That, for example, right there, I was on the phone. Newmark's a member of the National Minority Supplier Diversity Council. And I was talking to the New Jersey and New York head about their numbers two years ago before, you know, the social movement and George Floyd and all that. And they had 50 members in the New York, New Jersey uh, member. After the last week, they had 1,700 members. So again, it's forcing the conversation. Yeah. It's making people say, I must do this to be competitive, you know, with my peers here. And again, to your point, Greg, it's like there's the, the social element piece, right? Where, uh, you know, these, these Gen Z, they want to come in and say, how are you going to develop me, right? If I'm a woman, how am I going to be afforded equal pay? How are you going to explain this to me and not just tell me it. I want to understand how this is going to work. Show me the process. Show me the documentation, right? Firms that do this well will succeed. They'll get the best talent. Firms that do not 
will be laggards and, and, and will be ineffective in this. So it is huge. ESG drives that social piece, the health and wellness, the health benefits, the mental health piece that we're starting to really see come through here, especially the remote work and how we're all at home and stuff. This is all being brought into here and really we can use that to, you know, attract and retain as the bigger piece too, right? Retain the people that we have as well. Because we, again, like you said, they want to work for good organizations. And if we can put that story together, um, yeah, it really helps. Huh? I just want to go back to Maureen's comment. It was a great reminder, like the, what we do now is important in a way that it never was because of the right. role that it, it's obvious that needs to be played. And I was attracted to, you know, leave general consulting the energy sector to come to real estate because it was the place where all this was happening. We had 300 year transformations, the energy sector, the transportation sector, and now prop tech, and we're investing big in technology. And people are saying, hey, that's cool. That's like, that's where I want to be. And that was not the case five years ago, even as I was working in the energy sector and realizing that the, that the buildings and the logistics and the infrastructure that surrounds buildings are the game. They are, in fact, the game now. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that, you know, having a you know, cohesive policy it has to be applied with finesse globally because you take, for example, hybrid work. You can mandate it to a certain extent in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, you can't do that. You can't mandate hybrid work. And it may conflict culturally with how people want to use the office and how they want to commute and whether there's public transportation. So it's complex in the way you deploy this. You can think of it, you know, from a, it, you know, a principal perspective that you have, you know, policies in place, but you're really to apply it globally becomes there's a lot of finesse required. Right. Even with tax implications or, or yeah. wage implications, because there are some countries that have actually changed the rule, whereas if you can demonstrate that an employee must come in the office rather than being remote, then you would pay them a premium or if they're requested to do half and half and spend more time at home, then that would change what they're being paid. So also just being cognizant of the fact that there are some changes that are happening in regard to hybrid that add to your business case, and you might not be aware until you put some policies in place. So it's, uh, it's just understanding that, you know, local communities are also reacting to hybrid and what it means. And, um, but that's kind of also what makes it pretty exciting because the, right now, if you look around the world in corporate real estate, there is so much momentum happening with this change and all the way down to what we haven't mentioned it that much right now on this call, but even the concept of consumable space and the idea that some of it can be extremely flexible and shared, you know, as in co-working and other, other models like that, which really um, help reduce carbon, make it a much better amenity, but it's becoming a very valid component of your portfolio strategy. So all of these new types of offerings um, have to come into the mix as well, because they do drive in many ways um, your ESG agenda too. And, you know, speaking of hybrid, we actually got a question through chat, if you want to pause for a minute and address it. So uh, the question is, with hybrid work, corporations consuming energy to run offices while employees are using energy by working home? I guess the question is, they are uh, mm -hmm. doing both. So how can corporations address this dual energy consumption? I would start having worked in many industries. Buildings are still as unintelligent a device as we see in any industry. Just take a Carnival Cruise Line. Okay, this is a ship where if I walk down the 12th floor deck, I can see on screens every restaurant in the place and how many people are in the queue. And that immediately drives my behavior about what I want to eat. Buildings need to be massively more intelligent about occupancy, about the conditions in the building. When I walk into a conference room with my clients, we sit down in their room. What happens to the blower? It shuts off. It ought to do the opposite. It ought to ramp up because there's three people in a confined space more than 20 minutes. At the same time, that building should be shutting itself on every location. And these sensors are available. These technologies were demonstrable 30 years ago when I was a young engineer. And they are now being realized that the sector's underinvested. So this dual consumption is the fact that we don't have an advanced set of management practices at the building level. And this is not like new technology. You don't have to go cutting edge, bleeding edge. This is stuff that's been available for years. You have to adopt it, look at your work practices, and that building becomes um, the consuming sense of match behavior. And that's not happened in most buildings. And some of that really just comes down to understanding the difference between IT and OT. And that has been um, an increasing issue when you start looking at these digital footprints and even understanding occupancy or how you operate the building. 
So what we are seeing across the board, and I can tell you from a, a Collier's perspective, it seems to be one of the most um, um, discussed with, with clients currently is this point that Greg brings up about how do you make that space smarter and how do you bring the right people in to be able to do it? Because frankly, you might be phenomenal in IT and in prop tech, but perhaps not building operating systems and how those sensors work and how you integrate those. So really understanding um, what it is that you're trying to solve for and then getting the right group of experts in there to help you do it right the first time, you know, um, because it really makes a big difference. And if you look at some of the on-demand space designs right now, it is all about leveraging technology to create platforms for space, space on demand. And the better we get at that, also with the home consumption, it is uh, people are talking about it quite a bit right now, because if you do have a, a remote workforce, you are increasing demand during the day. If you had no one in the home, typically, and now all of a sudden you're there all day, you've got your lights on, you've got, uh, you know, you're cooking at home, perhaps for lunch, you're doing things that you hadn't been doing in the past. Um, it is an issue and it's under discussion because how do you track that? And again, perhaps you do that through monitoring uh, the utility bills, but if you've got a lot of employees, that is a big road to hoe. So then the, it, it's a com it is a complex issue for sure. That, that has been an issue we talked about as well with Newmar. It's a lot of people working remotely from home. Me, myself, I sit at home and work. I turn the heat on, the air conditioning in my house by myself, right? It's so inefficient from home. And how do you, how do you calculate that and input that into the overall carbon footprint of a business, right? Because it really is. Yeah. So this is, again, whole new world. The data collection yeah. piece that you guys talked before is no standard. There's some best practices you can use, but there's no true rhyme or reason to this. So um, that is a huge piece, definitely, that we're looking into, too. Well, and I think there's the other part of the equation is that your carbon footprint, you're not commuting. For instance, you know, in consulting, we've reduced our, our, our air travel by 40%. Massive. Massively. Is that offset what we use at home? And then it gets complicated because there may be, you're assuming the home would be empty all day long. There may be somebody at home. And the, the, the fact too is we're not really too, we're tending to go to three, two. That seems to be what the market is going to, but still with all the different variants and everyone having a different situation, you know, there's no standardization. We haven't hit steady state at all. We're not even close yet to when people come in. We know theoretically what it's going to be, but, you know, how we measure this overall, the impact to the overall carbon footprint, there's puts and takes, right? And I don't know if we have enough information. I mean, conceptually, you would think that reduce of air travel may and commuting may offset the in-home energy consumption, but you know, we can't measure that yet. We, and again, we built a model, right? But again, homes in the South during a certain mm -hmm. time of year versus homes in the, so all of these factors, right? That come into play here and we did it. If you take the train, if you take the bus, if you carpool, if you took a car, if it was during rut, all of these factors built in and it comes up with all different types of calculations, right? So again, it's literally the wild west right now and trying to figure this stuff out. Our next question that came through chat is, do you see a value to digital twinning of existing buildings and stock to quickly drive implementation of energy conservation measures in these buildings as an item under ESG? If so, do you think companies are behind in considering this element to satisfying the E in ESG? Um, can I, first of all, the second part of the question is absolutely true. Companies are behind because the expectation around carbon was so disruptive in the last two years that what used to be a checklistable set of things, like I got my, my building certified lead, or I have done some things, I was looking okay on what I would call basic ESG benchmarks. But the commitments, again, JLO made a commitment to science-based targets. You can't fake that. We're only going to offset 5%, no more. So you have to find real reductions. And I think every company that's made a science-based target, there's now 2,400 in the world, are behind and they've admitted that. Actually 70 or more percent have admitted they don't have a plan yet. So twinning is one of several aspects of getting a baseline. We're looking at you know, satellite imaging. We're looking at the acquisition of data through clamping of circuits, like a multi-threaded acquisition of data that would allow you to actually get at the building and then start to put substantive investment plans against changing its pathway. And owners and occupiers alike are kind of at that holy crap moment where it's like, really, you really have to look at this at the portfolio level. 
All right, we've had another question come in, but why don't we go on to a couple of our questions for a little bit and then we'll come back to the chat questions. But please do keep those chat questions coming. They're, you know, they always add a great deal of value. So our next question for, for the panel is, you know, in your opinion, what should people be thinking about when they that they don't think about and is related to ESG? What are some of those hidden challenges that they're not even seeing that are not in their rear view even. It's hard to think right. about for every company, but um, because people are very different on their journeys. I mean, you mm -hmm. you deal with some organizations that are so sophisticated and impressive of where they are, but for you know many who right after the pandemic and people were really beginning to rethink about how they are coming back and all of a sudden understanding some of these looming goals and targets that they're facing and the SEC looking at their point, there were many things that created more I think emphasis. And so uh, I think one of the biggest things is though, it's not unusual to find someone that's been hired and they're the head of ESG for a company and they sit somewhere in that company, very often uh, not in real estate, or if you do find someone in real estate and they say they're ahead of it, they really were focused on energy initiatives and, and sustainability initiatives, but not so much the full ESG. And the fact is that the need to take that as rather than a, a role in a company and have that person be far more of the, the PMO for the entire organization around the way it is operating with the standard operating procedures. And so when you look at real estate, looking at anything from the international building operating standards that have been released, um, there's different ways of looking at all of your SOPs and re-engineering the way you operate. But understanding that even if you did that for your own group, then you have to understand how are you interfacing with these other groups because you have to actually change the way you're operating with a lot of your business partners as well. And then ultimately it comes all the way down to there is new research coming out and a new value prop coming out from the International Value Standards Group that's saying, you know, your decisions do impact these assets that you're in. There could be a very positive impact. So for example, we saw that uh, this past week, Google announced uh, that it's buying the state of Illinois building in Chicago, for example, and the impact that it's had very positively when it went into King's Cross, or you look at some of these other areas around the world, there could be amazing impact in a halo effect that an embassy can have or an organization, or there could be a negative impact. And so I think understanding that when all these processes are changing, how you work with your business partners and advising um, it's a much broader thing than looking at measuring your energy and measuring and reporting for certain things. It's, it's really rethinking the way you do business and how you do business across the board and making that not only a mindset, but a whole new way of operating. Yeah, I agree. I don't think ESG should be looked at as a standalone. It should be embedded across all processes. It should be something that's in, you know, that activities are budgeted for. It should be included in lease negotiations. It should be included in the sourcing and attraction of talent. Again, embedding that, understanding the risk, like we said before, and making that part of the process, I think is something that people don't see. They see it as a standalone thing. Um, another thing that I've seen that came out, and it's related to diversity and inclusion, that's kind of a, a one-off, is ensuring that the remote worker is included in DE&I, right? So like, again, we're always talking about diversity, but I feel this sometimes at home being alienated, right? You got the guys in the office, yeah. you're getting the, the good information, they're, they're vibing with everybody and you're sitting in your room, you know, 10 states away. So like, how do you involve that remote yeah. worker into the culture, make sure that they're part of the process, that you're getting the best out of them and that they have the opportunity to advance and produce there, right? So like, that's a big piece that I hear a lot of people focus on other groups here, but the remote worker is definitely... Yeah something that needs to be taken into consideration as, as, as high up and as uh, significant as it is now. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to realize because we talk about hybrid working mm -hmm. and we're going to three, two, when you talk to actual employees and lots of our clients have, they assume that the, that their employees will be happy that they get to work remotely two days a week. What the employee hears is that I have to go to the office three days a week. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of what you think that they don't see it as necessarily a benefit working. That's an expectation. And so having to manage that in terms of why people come to the office, there's got to be a re people go to the office as long as they need to be there. And until we have to Michael's point where you have this mix of people that are dial, you know, are, are remote versus in person, it, it actually can act as a inhibitor to people going to the office. Because if I go to the office and then I come home and I still have 
you know, three or four Zoom calls later that day. Why did I spend two hours of my day commuting, right? That's almost like a lost time. So we're going to have to find, you know, kind of our, our equilibrium over time. But, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge. I think this is a big deal. I think um, seeing what I said earlier around human capital strategies really tightly related to environmental and performance in buildings. I mean, just look at the range of possibilities if you're leading a company. You could be Jamie Dimon, who basically told all the employees to come to work. And 30 days later, 40% of his year class quit. Or you could be Mark Benioff, who told his employees at Salesforce that you don't need to come to work ever. And he's got $4.2 billion worth of real estate in San Francisco empty. And so that's your range. And so the idea, look at Ford Motor Company, building an entirely new facility to create an entirely new division, to work an entirely different way to create electric vehicles in Detroit and in Tennessee. That has to be coupled with this. And I think people don't think about workforce and human capital when they think about ESG, and yet all the designs that you would make true in responding to Proposition 1, which is why should I come in and how engaging and effective will I be are actually touching the same subsystems that you would solve if you talked about what I talked about, the smart building, who has presence and knowledge of an awareness of context of human beings. And these are intimately tied and people treat them as separate. Thank you. You know, it's, it's really interesting, the conversation around the, the human capital, the labor markets, the location strategy, and then ESG and kind of just all tying it together. But, you know, part of, part of that conversation is also stakeholder engagement. And what does that look like today? And then, you know, with the, with the big R word, the threat of recession, how do we make sure that ESG initiatives aren't moved to the back burner again? And, you know, I mean, I know ESG has become more than just a bullet point now. It's, it's definitely more something that companies are looking at. Look at us having this conversation and all the, all the attendees listening to us keenly. So what does that look like? And what, you know, what do, what do we need to do to make that happen? I'll start with just on stakeholder engagement. I mean, I've mentioned the owner and the occupier relationship is really dramatically changing because both the companies that live in spaces and the people that own them now have this imperative and, and it's logical to look at each other and start to figure it out together. That was the intention of the original framework of the green leases created. Uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute framework was a co-investment model. So we see that as a really important relationship. We, we surveyed a thousand companies, 50-50 occupiers and owners, and asked about what are the barriers to achieving ESG goals. And 60% of the owners said the tenant and 60% of the tenants said the owner. Owners, so yeah. we, we, we have an engagement problem. I was with um, uh, at a round table of investors and talked about this. And most of them, the, the vast majority, except one or two, hadn't even considered an engagement approach, or what would it look like to actually have an intimate relationship with your tenants? And they said that ten, the engagement usually starts and finishes within six months of a lease. And then everything in between is dead time. And we're like, you got to flip that. So most haven't realized that. And then thirdly, I would just throw in cities, an incredibly important stakeholder that are flexing more weight in policy and actually starting to emulate each other, like things that are going on in New York, Portland's trying to do, and thing that Paris did, Boston is doing. And there's a study of that trend and it's happening. So you get the owner occupying cities as a really important set of people to be collaborating. And we're going to see more and more of that. And yeah, even I, I, in, I, go, go ahead, Michael. No, I, I would just say, again, understand the first thing is understanding who these people are, right? You have a million stakeholders, like who are the most pressing and key stakeholders, right? Like, that's the first one. Is it our employees, investors, tenants? You know, what, what are the, who are the real stakeholders here? And then again, the communication plan, letting them know on a cadenced uh, approach when this is going to happen, what we're going to be asking you, how this data is going to be used, involving them in the process, right? Um, and having a mechanism to, to capture their feedback. Is it a survey? Is it a quarterly business review? Is it a panel review like this where everyone's together giving their ideas? As Maureen said before, running that through materiality and the risk and then having some type of sign off to let them know, hey, I'm participating. I'm telling you what's important. And you're you're hearing that you're either accepting it or um, dismissing it. But I understand why you're doing what you're doing. Right. So involving them in their communicating. And then once again, just communicating the logic back to why we move forward with something or why we didn't. I think just involving that whole process, but communication is the key part of stakeholder engagement. And, and you brought up recession. I mean, 
you know, it doesn't take away the shortage of talent. That, that remains. So depending on if we do go into recession, the depth of recession, I, I would expect that there may be some moderation to the wage pressure, but it doesn't close the gap. It's so significant in terms of uh, the shortage of talent. So, you know, there, there may be some impacts of a recession, but I really think it'd be more on wages than it will be on, we're going to balance the scale between available people and available jobs. Hmm. And then also perhaps there will be an impact on available capital for some projects. But if you sure. go back to what we originally spoke about, if you um, really clearly understand what opportunities are out there for you to take as initial steps and you prioritize them, and then you understand which are associated with money and which are really low cost, no cost, um, and then maybe moving those up. The importance, though, of people understanding, particularly when you start talking about a very active Gen Z workforce, people who are really engaged in trying to help the organization change, um, to have a tool where you can collect people's ideas and suggestions outside of your own good ones, right? Inviting employees to say, what do you think? I remember um, when I was at WeWork, you know, a lot of times in the communities, some of the groups some of the businesses would come in just with ideas. And if they were good, it could impact maybe a region. It could impact globally what we would change, what we were doing in operations. And um, I'm looking at Colliers right now. They're ahead of ESG's doing the same thing where every employee can put suggestions in. And if suggestions are taken, they're congratulated and perhaps even getting recognized for uh, whatever that was, if it's impactful. If you're not, it's getting back and explaining why they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, they listened to me. Maybe they didn't take it. I'll send another suggestion. And so that engagement of having people really feel and see that ability to, you know, be more transparent with people around where you are. And not that, for example, you know, there's so much conversation right now about urban heat islands. And the fact is, is that in these big cities, while everyone was running to move all the jobs to the big city several years ago, um, the amount of heat that comes off the load of these buildings between the sidewalks, the parking lots, the roofs, the facades, it's, it's enormous. And so there's pushes with the communities, you know, as Matt was suggesting that the cities are getting far more involved around uh, tree canopies, uh, white roofs, white sidewalks, so it's reflective surfaces, reflective windows. Those are very exciting things, whether you're a third party tenant or whether you're a corporate occupier. Because these are just, again, changing your specifications and looking and see what an impact of a group of buildings can be. And that's where organizations, even such as BOMA or IRAM, you know, the whole built environment is coming a lot closer together to share these best practices. So whether you're in a local community or we're in a community of real estate professionals, sharing those ideas are becoming much more common today between the associations and collaboration than we've ever seen in the past. On, on the recession, I mean, I think it's worth noting there, I think there's a real risk that companies will pull back because they feel pressure. Uh, it's a bad strategy. There's a guy named Nitin Noria, a Harvard professor who did a, a review of 40 years of recessions and the companies that invested during the recession came out faster and stronger. So Maureen said this, like most of these investments pay, they pay for the investor in the value of the portfolio, they pay for the occupier in cost, revenue, profit, brand, reputation, new markets. And almost all of them are free, not all of them, but the vast significant part of what will be derived, if you're willing to make these investments, is returned in hard terms. And so I think people forget that. And that's part of our job is to sort of lay out the roadmap, as Maureen said, which ones pay, which ones are required, and to set out an investment plan that you'll stick to. And you'll, and, and you'll win if you do that. Um, right. We were talking about it the other day. It's like the ROI you know, everyone would talk about return on investment. Now they say, what's my return on impact and what's my return on my people? So your business case is also taking a different position. You're looking at all the areas rather than just the math. And don't forget how much change management has to go on that too, right? So factor that whole piece in too and all of that. We all know that that's a massive piece of this, right? So this is not normal for people. Change management has to be factored into that. And I know you want to get to some questions too, so thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we've had uh, quite a few questions come through, and I'm going to go out of order in terms of how they came in, came in, just because, you know, it, some of these tie a little bit closer to what we just finished discussing. So the first question I'm going to bring up is my corporate clients are focused on increasing profit. 
other facts supporting the pursuit of ESG as adding to a company's profitability? I think, again, it depends on your business, right? If, you, if you're talking about business development, are you losing opportunities because you do not have these processes and procedures in place? I think it's it really it really depends, right? So I know for a fact, like definitely a lot of people are behind in some of these areas. So it, it's it's not like we're all on a by ourselves here. It's it's a big group that are trying to do this. But yes, I would I would say it definitely has to do with specific to your to your individual company. It is impacting a lot of people. And I know I've heard so many comments from people in consumer goods, consumer packaging, particularly small businesses. So when they do business with a big corporation that will send them a whole letter saying, fill this out, what are you doing in this and this? And some of these very small family-owned businesses, they don't understand and they need help to understand what does this mean about my packaging? What does it mean about where my sources come from for my supplies? These could be farms, right? So it is really, you know, when you look at it, you're doing business with a big corporation, it could be because they've got a very strong commitment to doing business with small businesses, with minority women-owned businesses. Um, you, you have to be prepared that they're going to look for you to have some sort of compliance in what you're doing if you're going to be part of that supply chain. And so we're seeing a hu huge focus right now through supply chain to understand, because if depending on what scope you are working in, some of these are going scope one, two, and three, and then that's going to impact you. I know for us, you know, we are a WBE and we've been sponsored. We've been very fortunate to be sponsored by Collier's. And so, but we absolutely uh, walk the walk and have to do what is expected of us working not only with a big corporation, but actually we were formed because of ESG. So it makes it a little bit easier on us, it, it, but it, it is a, a reality um, that's impacting many businesses around the world. Back to straight profit, you know, motivation. Uh, most studies show that more than 60% of consumers want to work with companies that will choose brands of companies that have made a stand on critical social issues. And number one on that list is climate equity is number two generally. So that you can't think that that doesn't have an impact on profit, on brand, on reputation, on, on penetration of products. Then you open up the decarbonization agenda, you know, what, what is likely to be trillions in the transition of investments. And either you're there watching or you're in the game. So these are profit pools. These are massive profit pools that are being compelled by the market, not regulation. So he, he, again, that feels like a great profit incentive. And then for companies that are, you know, going after their footprint, as Maureen said, there's real value uh, across the value chain. And most are hiding in the form of not having good data on it, but that doesn't mean there's not real value there. Uh, there is a tremendous value tied up in uh, legacy practices that are all being surfaced. These are all great reasons to be there, even if you are the CFO who's, you know, the son of Scrooge, like you, you will like many of these things. <laughs> Um, one of the questions that came in, and it ties a little bit to what uh, Maureen mentioned earlier, and I think they mean for companies in the U.S. perhaps, is it, isn't this cost prohibitive for small businesses to operate? It, it, you know what? The fact is, it's not cost prohibitive to do really very basic, important measures. And that is everything from what is your purpose, what's your commitment, what's your business model, and then how do you go about every day conducting your business. Now, when you do get into consumer brands and cer certain products and things like that, what is becoming very expensive, and this goes back to process, is that I, I have spoken with several small businesses that are in um, like food and beverage area. And so, for example, they'll get data sheets on quality management, and it's all about, you know, food safety and all that. They're like, well, of course we practice that, but the amount of detail that they have to fill on these huge sheets that they receive, and because none of their process is automated, they're not using technology, it's a manual process filling these forms in over and over again. So again, this goes back to process reengineering. And, it, you know, the question is, well, do you use any simple softwares that could help you? Because it seems like the questions are always the same. So if you are collecting that data, you can more automate the way you're responding to these questionnaires that you're getting. And if you have a managed process, that too will help rather than being a little bit more ad hoc. So while it, yes, it's expensive. However, um, in the end, as we've been saying, this will actually probably result in cost savings for them as well, because they're they're re what they're learning is they don't have a tremendous process.
behind their fire management process and will help them be more efficient as well and identify areas probably of waste and other things. But, um, but getting started, the problem is that it could be overwhelming. It's so big of a topic that it looks like you're trying to boil the ocean and it's so overwhelming for a small company, they think it's unaffordable. And that's why understanding, doing that materiality and hitting the areas that really count and matter to your customers, that's where you start. Because I, I can't imagine that unless you've got some horrible business model, that the objectives here are to put a small business out of business. Thank you, Maureen. We have a ton of questions and only four minutes left. So I'll ask one final question. And you know, if anyone has a quick couple of sentences, you know, we can't really talk about ESG without talking of the future. And that's where college comes in. So where what ESG-related knowledge can we learn in college? In other words, how can we become ESG professionals? I will tell you that the profession, the people that are coming out of colleges now have more skills than we think because uh, my son is a chemical engineer and just graduated two years ago from university. As a chemical engineer, he knows how to do complex energy modeling. So the universities across multiple disciplines are teaching the analytics that mm-hmm. are the basics. So the, the people that we're hiring have far more background than the people that we've had for a long time because uh, universities are stepping up. Kids are interested, they're taking curriculum that bend toward the flexibility and they're learning stuff that traditional disciplines hadn't taught for many years. So you're surprised to know that many are actually learning the exact skills we need. Also, many of them have started uh, centers for sustainability, centers for ESG, and they're casting a very broad net. And so they, they'll be a center at the university, but that's because whether you're getting an engineering degree or a facilities mm-hmm. degree or a business degree, they all need to share in those learnings. And so these centers, they're very inclusive of bringing outside speakers in and uh, doing internships with companies to learn more about what um, groups are doing. And I, I do think in many ways, particularly with the real estate schools that have been involved, is giving a lot of students an exposure to our industry where they wouldn't have had one really in the past. So um, I think academia has embraced this topic uh, for a long time, but now they're really um, getting much more focused on it given the business needs as well. Thank you for that. Any final thoughts? If not, we can wrap up. Good conversation. Absolutely. Thank you to all of you for being here, for sharing your insights. It was absolutely wonderful discussing this uh, topic with you. And thank you for, you know, making time to do that. Thank you to all the attendees for being here. We had uh, great questions come through chat. We don't always have such an active uh, attendee pool. uh, So we appreciate you bringing that extra layer of uh, insight by asking those questions. And hopefully we'll see you at a future event. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.